Good morning. Um, geez, this is a bit different. I've been sitting in this seat since 2019. I'm used to just talking into a laptop and hoping that everyone's listening. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Richard Jensen. Um, myself and my family, we've been part of this community for about seven and a half years. It's a, a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning. I suppose privilege probably isn't the best word to be using after events this week, but uh, I'm really grateful to be able to share with you. Uh, it's really humbling every six to 12 months when Joseph reaches the bottom of the barrel and tends to Uh, so for those who've been lucky enough to grow up in church context, 
context, you've probably been hearing these stories since almost before you can remember. Uh, and also, they're parables that carry a lot of weight uh, for people. They're uh, the, the common meanings and interpretations understood about repentance are about, and about God's extravagant love and his desire to include us in his kingdom. They're powerful messages. And I want to acknowledge at the outset that they're messages that resonate for a lot of people and carry a lot of weight for their own faith journeys. Um, so uh, while those themes, they're worth remembering and they are true and they are real, and I'm not suggesting this morning that we throw them away, um, I think we can ask ourselves when we look at these parables today, is there something more here? Are these parables just about forgiveness and repentance? Or is that just a lens which we've been uh, trained over the years to view them through? And what might happen if we put those glasses down and look at these parables afresh. Uh, now I don't, in saying the words afresh, I don't want to be so arrogant as to suggest to you that what I'm sharing this morning is some sort of Richard's fresh take on these parables or some sort of new reading. I think the reality is we're, str we're swimming in a stream that's been flying for over 2,000 years. Oh. These generations of believers have wrestled with teaching of Jesus and its meanings. So while there's nothing new under the sun, what I've found is that there's a joy and a freshness in rediscovery Beautiful. and peeling back the onion of our preconceptions of understandings of what really any of Jesus' teachings mean. Beautiful. And in this way, um, I'm indebted to the work of Amy Jill Levine. She's a New Testament scholar of a Jewish background. Um, and I found... Her work uh, is very powerful. It seeks to honour Jesus through, but Jesus' teaching, but looking at through a, a Jewish lens of thought and understanding. Uh, for spoiler alert, Jesus was Jewish, and so it's probably helpful to take on board some of that understanding. Uh, and if we turn to the, the, the next slide, I like it how she invites us to look at Jesus' parables. Jesus knew that the best teaching concerning how to live abundantly comes not from spoon-fed data or an answer sheet. Instead, it comes from narratives that remind us of what we already know but are resistant to recall. So with that in mind, uh, we'll turn to these three parables, shall we? So uh, the three parables we're looking at this morning are in Luke uh, 15, uh, and we see first the parables of the lost sheep and the lost verses 3 to 10, which are on the next slide. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And we move then to the parable of the lost coin on the next slide. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a, light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angel 
tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus goes into the parable. So we've got this idea of the, the sort of scrum of Pharisees uh, sort of getting into Jesus. You know, why are you meeting with these sinners and tax collectors? Now, what's interesting um, for some of us, people like me, uh, the parable of the lost sheep doesn't just appear in Luke. Um, it appears on its own in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. And the bare bones of the parable about the man going off to find a sheep, it's related in the same way, but the, the kind of context and explanation is quite different. And Matthew 18, it's the disciples who are with Jesus um, and there's a, a ch some children around and Jesus calls one of the children over and, and tells the story and that's what we see on the other side of the slide. Uh, chapter 18 begins at that time the disciples came to Jesus saying who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and calling him a child he put him in the midst of them and then there's some other teachings parables up to verse 10 and then Jesus continues uh, with this picture of the disciples and the child present there. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and on he goes. Now this might not be the sort of thing that spins your wheels, but I kind of find it quite interesting. We've got the same parable told in the same way. But for Luke and for Matthew, there's this different preamble, this different context, which effectively informs the meaning that they ascribe to what the parable is really about. And it does leave us with some unanswered questions, doesn't it? I mean, did Jesus say the same parable twice to two in two different contexts uh, with two different meanings? Uh, perhaps. Uh, maybe he taught the parable to, to different Listeners and they took their different meanings, which were passed on to, to different groups of people. Uh, and we almost have these two streams of understanding breaking off from uh, the one story. And then they find their way into the two Gospels. Maybe he only told the story once. Uh, but even in the earliest attempts of the Jesus followers attempting to wrestle with Jesus' teaching, these two different interpretations arise uh, and in the working things out in the early community they're somehow given equal weight and what we see is Luke and Matthew having a well I thought it was told that way I thought it was told that way we just agree to disagree I guess we'll never know but I think what it might suggest to us is that it could be helpful just to look at the bare bones of the stories to take out the context to take out the gloss or interpretation that may or may not have been added by Luke or Matthew um, and to just look at the bare bones of the stories and see what they tell us. So uh, if we go to the next slide. So the parable of the sheep, the lost sheep, what's this at a basic level? A man has a hundred sheep, that's no small amount of sheep. One is missing and no, he's got an abundance of sheep, he's got a hundred. He's clearly someone who takes time to count. And that must be the case because it's surely by only carefully counting your sheep that you would realise
hiding, he has one missing. He seeks the one out, he brings it home, and then all the flock is together, and it's time to party. The next slide. Uh, we then move to the woman and her ten coins. Again, a somewhat uh, abundant uh, position. Again, someone who takes time to count, uh, because I mean, although it's a smaller amount, you're probably still going to need to count to realise you've got nine rather than ten. There's a search, again, this time involving a bit of spring cleaning, uh, which I'm sure resonates with some of us because I always make packs with God to be more tidy when I'm searching for things I'm looking for. Uh, the coin is found, and again, the party doesn't start. slide. So from the hundred to the ten, we have this refrain, be careful to count. Notice what is missing. Go out and seek what is lost because the party only starts when everything is back together. Now if we look at these parables in this way, we, we can see that these teachings reflect uh, what some people refer to as a sort of radical inclusivity that we see in Jesus' teaching. It's sort of in being inclusive on steroids. Everyone's in. Everyone's invited to the banquet. Because if we look at these parables, what they're really saying is the party doesn't really start until everyone's here. Uh, and we might think this is why Luke perhaps puts these parables in response to Jesus being challenged about eating with the tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees are saying, well, you, you shouldn't have those sort of people with you and all those sort of people going to cause trouble. But Jesus tell these, tells these parables, these stories in response to that suggestion. To that suggestion that there's certain types of people that ought not to be included in God's kingdom. So the challenge to the original here is the challenge to us as here is 2,000 years later is to us, well, are we being careful to count? To notice what is missing? To bring them to the fold? Or are we content with a flock or a number of coins that is abundant but with some still missing, but we're comfortable with what we've got and we'll start the party anyway? As a, a Christian and a person who's been in church communities for a number of years, I feel this challenge quite acutely, and it's a challenge. I think for a lot of us, um, and it's certainly a situation where I think we need to acknowledge the elephant in the room that a lot of the perception of church and Christian communities is that they're often defined by who they choose to exclude rather than following this teaching of Jesus of radical inclusiveness. So I think it's always important that we take that challenge on board, we ask ourselves when we, when we account for our community, who's missing? Who needs to be included? Because the, the urging, the challenge of Jesus is that, well, the party may seem like a party now, but the party's not really going to start until everyone's included. Uh, and, of course, there's a natural reaction to that. Well, that's great it's not easy in practice. Uh, of course, there's richness 
it's obvious why Jesus calls us to it, but um, I think the, the hesitancy that comes back is it doesn't come without risk. A risk of upsetting our own apple cart, a risk of potentials for disagreement, for dysfunction um, to come in. And I think what I want you to do this morning is just to hold those concerns, hold that resistance in your mind, hold it in your heart as we move to this third parable, because I think Jesus provides us with a way through some of that uh, when we look at the parable of the prodigal son in light of the first two parables. So from the shepherd and the woman, who are careful to count, to notice what is missing from the hundred to the ten, we then move to the well-known story of the prodigal son, a seemingly unrelated parable. So the obvious question is, well, what's it doing here? Two similar parables with a similar rhythm. Now this one, from counting a hundred, to counting ten, to counting to two. So let's have a look at this prodigal now, thinking about who is lost, how they are found, and of course, when does the party start? I'll turn to the next slide. It starts in verse 11, and he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. <coughs> Next slide. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now just remember that. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us even celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So in the first two parables in Luke 15, one of 100 and then one of 10 is lost. In the third parable, there are only two sons. So which one is lost? Well, our natural reaction is to say, well, it's the younger one. The one who goes away, spins up large, comes home with his tail between his legs. Maybe. And that's certainly what we've always been taught. And what we've been taught is, of course, as I've said, it's a parable God's extravagant love, seen most famously in the father running to greet his son as he returns and then throwing a big party. <coughs> but if we look at this parable a bit more critical, and if we think about it in light of the first two stories, we might have some reason to reconsider. Unlike the coin and the sheep, the younger son's not really lost. 
And the father has a fair idea of where he's gone, and he certainly knows why he's gone. And the father's actually been complicit and facilitated the leaving by giving him all the money and sending him on his way. And while this younger son appears to repent, in many ways we might think nothing's really changed. That's why I told you to remember that passage about treating as one of your hired servants. Because while he's away, that's what he says he's going to do. He's going to humble himself. He'll just be one of your servants. But when he gets back, he's again quite happy to take advantage of the father's generosity. He stops short of making that suggestion. And he's quite happy to take the road and the heartache. So the father's convinced that it's the younger, it's the prodigal, he's the one who's lost. And that in finding him and his younger son returning, he's accounted for everyone and the party can start. So if the parable stopped right there, we might be content. We might think, well, this is just a third parable, similar to the other two, uh, but this time in the context of a, a father with two sons. Uh, but one of the things with Jesus is that he is a master teacher. And he turns things on their head by raising the question, well, has this father failed? His older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never go. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. If you think of this part of the parable in light of the first two, I think this is actually somewhat of a poignant image. Like the first two parables, in the third we have this image of the party going on, but the elder son has no idea. He's still in the field working and has to be told by the servants what's going on. The owner spots the missing sheep among the hundred, and the woman spots the missing coin among the ten. This father, with only two sons, was unable to count while the father says, oh, it's, it's fitting for us to celebrate, the reality is he started the party when not everyone was there. And that's the end of the parable. There's no, they all lived happily ever after, just this abrupt and unresolved conclusion. And this is where I find this final portion of the parable quite interesting. We're left with no resolution. In fact, we're all left with some more of these unanswered questions. So if you turn to the next slide, like, like what happened next? I mean, what would you do if you were the older son? Do you go to the pub anyway? You say, well, no hard feelings, Dad. Give us a lamb shank. 
in the longer term, then what's going to happen? What's going to happen when the father dies and the older son gets his inheritance? Is he going to keep old Junior in his restored position? Or is he going to send him off to the stables? Is he going to take him up on his offer to treat him as one of the hired laborers? What about the younger son? If he is humble and repentant, recognizing his dependence on his family's generosity, what's he going to do? How can he gain back the loss of respect that his adventures have caused him? The father's provided some reconciliation, but at some point he's then to go and show his own responsibility. And what about the father? How does he bring restoration to his family? We've got one child who's been overindulged, and another child who fears that love has been stifled. But I guess those are just first century problems, aren't they? I mean, no one's aware of any families where we have those sort of sibling issues or intergenerational issues, do we? No. I mean, this is a parable actually gets a little bit more nitty-gritty than when we first expected. It's like, yep, he went there. Jesus started with some nice stories about sheep and a little old lady cleaning her house, and now he wants to talk about our families. It's enough for Jesus to challenge us about how we fail to include people, but in this third parable, he takes it a step further by asking us how we may fail to count as a family, even if forgiveness and reconciliation seem to be some 
way off. And perhaps that what Jesus, that's what Jesus is teaching us. The first two parables show us the value of inclusion. It show, they show us that well, your party's not really going to start until everyone's included. And this third parable zero in, zeroes in on how we might navigate the challenges of being together. Jesus gives us this picture of family to show to show us how we can navigate those challenges. Because what better way to apply that teaching by using uh, the most together environment that we'll ever experience, but in many ways the most challenging environment that we will sometimes experience, our own families. Jesus takes his parables from the abstraction of coins and sheep to families because he knows that the challenge of living inclusively includes finding a way forward where there are disagreements, where there are difficulties, and where there can be dysfunction. And because, as I've said, while families are an incredible blessing, we all have our own family situations that leave us feeling like lost sons or daughters. Maybe it's been where love has been denied or withheld. Hurts have been inflicted and there's been no apology or forgiveness. But we still find even in those circumstances that there's a deep mystery, isn't there? And there's a deep human truth that no matter what happens, we're a family. And that always holds us together. How often have you heard people say, well, I guess he's still my father. Or, you know, you know he'll always be my brother. Families have this amazing ability to make us feel unconditionally loved and included, yet at times deeply hurt and excluded. And I think that's a real predicament each of us faces at times, and that's the predicament that the father and his lost sons face in this parable. And for what it's worth, I find this predicament resonates with my own life. Experience and experiencing my own family situation of at times hurt and separation. But the other side of the coin is that over time I found that being part of a family means that you create space to be together. And when you create that space to be together, there can be a gradual acceptance of things as they are. And though they're still not complete, there's still never that making whole. By creating space for the other person to be together, there's scope to move forward. So in a sense, I'm a lost son. But what I've found, and I think what the parable shows us, is that I'm still a son. And though there may not always be reconciliation and forgiveness by for what is lost and bringing it back together we can create space for the prospect of reconciliation and resurrection and that's why I really love this parable because I think in a way it shows us that Jesus understands the challenges and dysfunctions that family life can bring and he doesn't judge us for not having everything tied up he doesn't judge us for 
you're going to freaking solve the dilemma you dealt with. It's almost as if Jesus is saying through telling this story that when it comes to families, he gets it. Full repentance and forgiveness, they're not always going to come immediately. But like the graceful teacher he is, there's still that nudging, that graceful guiding us forward. That creating space for other people, creating space to be together, can provide a way toward wholeness. And I think we really see that when we compare this parable to the first two. And it's not as if the sheep and the coin repent when they're sheep and coins. Yet they're included, they're brought back, and then there is celebration. And perhaps this is the conclusion we are to draw about what the father in the parable should do. He needs to account for everyone and then begin the party and hope that reconciliation and healing can begin from there. And just as we do that in our own families, I think the challenge of this parable in terms of living inclusively is to do the same. Uh, to create space for other people uh, because in that way we can be the inclusive family that is the kingdom of God. So we need to always be asking ourselves how do we provide space for those who have not repented or been forgiven yet still belong? Amy Jill Levine sums up these challenges nicely. It's on the next slide. It provokes us with simple exhortations. Recognizing that the one you have lost may be right in your own household. Do whatever it takes to find the loss and then celebrate with others. Both so that you can share the joy and so that the others will help prevent the recovered from ever being lost again. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find it. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored, for there is nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. Instead, go have lunch. Go celebrate and invite others to join in. If the repenting and the forgiving come later, so much the better. And if not, you still have done what is necessary. You will have begun the process that might lead to reconciliation. You will have opened a second chance for wholeness. Take advantage of resurrection. It's unlikely to happen twice. So where does that leave us? The challenges that lurk in these parables may help you with challenges that you face in your family or relational situations, or they may not. I don't want to sit here today and suggest that some of the complex relational problems that inhabit our lives have an easy solution that can be distilled into a 30-minute sermon. But if you are facing those difficult situations, take heart. Jesus understands. And he does not judge broken aspects of your life of you because not every hurt has been reconciled to giving and dealt with. And take the challenge of and the nudge of these parables. The 
God create space for togetherness. It may, it may bear fruit, it may not. But either way, creating that space provides a pathway for you to live a whole and an open life. If we zoom out from our own families to this challenge of living inclusively, again, I think we come back to this picture that Jesus gives us, that the way to be inclusive is to treat people like family, to treat our communities like a family. Because in families, even when there is disagreement and dysfunction, when families are functioning well, even in the midst of disagreement and function, dysfunction, there is still a togetherness, a desire to move forward that creates the space for reconciliation and resurrection. So if there's that resistance to including everybody, perhaps we need to think to ourselves, well, how can we be a family? How can we hold disagreement and dysfunction and create a space for inclusion? Perhaps there's a little bit of an example of this if we harken back to Luke and Matthew's wee disagreement about how the story was told. Seems even in the very early days of So may you be good at counting the hundred, the ten, or the two. And if there are things that are missing, may God give you the courage and the strength to go and find them and bring them into the fold. May your families be spaces of love that model the paths of resurrection. And may we all seek to build God's family as a space of love, togetherness and inclusion because the party doesn't start until everyone's in.